You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I would like to begin here today by calling in the helping spirits to be with us. So I call out first to your ancestral helping spirits and to mine. I call out to all of those people who were here before us, who lived well, who died well, who met the challenges of their time in a way that brought forward that which was needed, that which had not yet been seen. And I call out to these people that had the wisdom to remember to carry through the traditions that remain vital and necessary to help human beings to stand in the challenges of their own time in their everyday life and be better humans. So I call out to these ancestors to gather around us here today and to help us the living to meet the challenges of our own time in a way that is good for those who are coming. And I reach through these human ancestors to all life that was here before there was ever a human. I call out to these even more ancient ancestors in their many, many forms here sharing life with us on earth. I call out to these ancestors to help us to remember our own true nature, to help us to remember that which is truly important in life, that which does go with us when we die, and to help us to remember to pay attention to these things in life. I call out to all of the ancestors of all of life to be with us here today and gather round and to help us, the living, to be here in a good way. And so let us each call ourselves from wherever we might be and draw our awareness into our head, stop the multitasking of contemporary life, and focus. And to breathe and draw our awareness from our head to our heart, and in the next breath, from the heart to the belly. And let us all take a moment and touch the earth herself and give gratitude. Gratitude for this day, Gratitude for the journey that has brought us to this moment and gratitude for that which will be. We give thanks for diversity. We give thanks for beauty. And we thank, give thanks for the generosity in the earth's dreaming that allows us to change anything as long as we are still breathing. We give great, great gratitude to the earth as we reach down through all the layers of the earth to the very center of the earth and connect into those energies that nourish and replenish and restore that which comes from silence and darkness and stillness that which allows us to renew in each day as we sleep at night and in each year as we go into the winter time we give deep deep gratitude to the energy of the earth and we draw this energy up drawing into drawing it into ourselves and into our day just as we would draw up water After a long, hot hike, we draw this energy into ourselves and let it replenish and restore us. We draw up the wisdom of manifestation and learn how to be manifest here in form in a good way. We call the energies of the earth up and we ask these energies to help us to learn how to be grounded, to know where we stand and what we stand for in life and build our sense of hearth and home on that. And may we build our sense of home in a way that is not just collecting people around us that think like we do and look like we do, but to do so in a way that there is an open chair at the table for that, those people who are different than we are, who think differently and in their very otherness will provoke us into becoming the men and women that we have truly come here to be. And in this way, may we come to understand the interconnections within ourself, interconnections with each other, with our environment, with the invisible world. May we come to understand how to be in right relationship in the many, many layers of relationship that make up a human life. And may we, in the bright moments of each day, have a moment of awareness of our place in the great web of life 
and to feel ourselves in that oneness, to be blessed by that moment of understanding and take our right relationship with ourself from that awareness. And with the energy of the earth being drawn up into us, into our belly and our heart and our mind, let us send our energy up and out and into the sky and whatever weather it holds for you here today, out through the sky, through the atmosphere, out through the atmosphere into the cosmos and let us reach our energy up and out through all the heavenly bodies, the great mysteries of our universe to these radiant energies above and by whatever name you call these energies, whatever way you conceive of it, connect with this energy, see yourself in it and it in you and begin to draw this energy down into yourself and into your day, into these proceedings. And in this way we draw in the essence energy of blessing. We draw in protection commitment and devotion and all the benevolence of the universe, the wisdom of the cosmos, and we call in that which can illuminate and inspire. We draw these energies into our head and our heart and our belly, sending it down to the center of the earth. And with this conscious intent, we open ourselves up to be this connection between heaven and earth, this connection of these two great legendary lovers, and we let that that love of these two energies and their connection to each other to be that big love within us to awaken our own hearts and let the spirit of our heart come alive open up that crucible of transformation that lives in our own hearts and draw up the fiery passions of our belly and draw down the crystal clarity of our mind to draw these energies together in the heart and to let them be together in a way that gives birth to that third and most sacred thing some sense, some feeling, some understanding, perhaps a memory of why you are here. And may you find in your human heart the courage to do something in this day, large or small, to bring your gifts into the world and to make them manifest. And for the enormous, enormous support that we receive from spirit in many forms to do what we've come here to do, I give great thanks. May what needs to be said be said, and what needs to be heard be heard, and may these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. And I'd like to give thanks to Alexa and Mark and Beth and Sherwood and all of the listeners who've been able to donate to the show financially. Why Shamanism Now is listener-supported, so if this show moves you in any way, uh, and it moves, it's moved you in the heart, even if it moves you to irritation, frustration, and distraction... <laughs> Nonetheless, you have been moved in the heart. And I ask you to do that most fundamental of shamanic things and allow what moves your heart to motivate your actions in the world. And I ask you to do something, large or small, to help the show to grow. So I give gratitude to those of you who are able to donate financially and pass on the gratitude from other listeners who cannot for the fact that you are. And if you'd like to donate, you can go to wiseshamanismnow.com. Click on the support button, scroll down, and donate any amount, large or small, and it all goes directly to keeping the show on the air. And if you are uncomfortable with that, you can certainly email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. And I'm happy to send you an everyday ordinary address for an everyday ordinary old-fashioned check. And for all the other things that you are doing to help the show to grow, I am equally grateful. Especially for those of you that have simply taken these things into your life and worked with them wrestled with them, tried to break them, tried to figure out how this actually works in our contemporary life. And for your efforts and your emails and your questions and your show ideas, I am deeply grateful. So thanks everyone for helping me to keep Why Shamanism Now out and available in the internet world free for anyone who is able to access the internet anywhere on the globe. So thank you all for this um, not insignificant task. So I'd like to give thanks for our guest today, Stephen Baer. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. I'm happy to be here. I'm always happy to talk with you. (laughs) Thank you so much. For those of you that have missed our previous shows with Steve, uh, Steve joined us for the first time to talk about his book, Singing to the Plants, which is a beautiful guide to mestizo shamanism in the upper Amazon and the use of sacred plant medicine. This was published by University of New Mexico Press. Steve has written extensively on Buddhism, Tibetan language, and religion, and today he is here to talk about his new book, Talking Stick, Peacemaking as a Spiritual Path. 
Steve is an independent scholar doing research and field work in ethnobotany, shamanism, ethnomedicine, and hallucinogenic plants and fungi. Uh, with a focus on indigenous and shamanic healing systems and the cognitive psychology of anomalous experiences. His current research centers on the concepts of healing and the lived body across cultures, the cross-cultural transmission of ethnomedical systems, and the role of alternative medical models and differing culture conceptions of herbalism and the healing plants. Stephen holds doctorates in both religious studies and psychology, and he is one of my favorite guests. And there are four previous shows in the archives for those of you who want to go um, click on Steve's name and find them there. You can reach Steve at www.singingtotheplants.com. And if you have any questions about today's show, you can connect with Steve through the website singingtotheplants.com. Or you can email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org and I would be happy to pass your emails on to Steve. So Steve, thanks again for joining me today. My pleasure. We're here to talk about the unfortunately lost art of peacemaking. <laughs> and and how we it certainly might... seems that way. Yeah. And and in particular how we might rediscover that path. I think um, like many, many paths in the woods, if you don't walk on it, it gets grown over, but it is still there. Um, so why this book now? What, what provoked you? Ah, provoke is a good word. Um, are, you are you ready for a long story? Yeah. Um, I, um, well, I, there, there, are, there are sort of two reasons. One is a, a distant one, and one is uh, a more recent one. So let me start with the more recent one, and then if, if you're interested, we can go into a little more background. But um, for many years, I, I worked as a peacemaker. Um, I gave uh, workshops and seminars. I taught uh, courses in the um, uh, uh, Department of uh, Justice Studies at Chicago State University in restorative justice and nonviolent resistance. Um, I uh, facilitated uh, peacemaking circles for a whole bunch of people and institutions, social workers, therapists, social work students, psychology graduate students, law students, wilderness therapists, and uh, nature educators and middle school students, high school students, teachers, principals, and staff at Montessori Charter Alternative and Public Schools. And I, I did this for a number of years while, alternatively, on, on the other half, I was, I was working on my uh, book on shamanism. Um, and at some point, because of a great deal of frustration with the restorative justice community in Chicago, I decided that what I wanted to do was to put down on paper essentially, essentially what I had been teaching in my courses, my graduate seminars, my, and my workshops about peacemaking. And so I sat down and I started writing a book which was basically my course, my workshop, my, uh, uh, my ideas about peacemaking. Um, and I put it aside. And while it was aside, I had a hard disk crash and it disappeared. Oh, no. And then several years later, only within the last year or so, I discovered on a shelf the only surviving hard copy printout of the book I had written a number of years before. And I looked through it, and it was awful. It was terrible. Um, and so I, I put it aside again, and then I looked at it, and I said, well, you know, there, there's some good stuff in here, actually. And at that time, I was feeling a similar frustration with um, the ayahuasca community, of which I had been a member for many years. 
And so I decided to rewrite this book. And I sat down and I started typing on the computer using the, the parts of the manuscript that I thought were good. And I was basically possessed. Um, and I did nothing but sit at the computer and write for three weeks and finish the whole book. All these thoughts, all these ideas that I had been teaching people had, had sort of sat in my head for all those years, and suddenly they were organized. <laughs> suddenly they all just poured out into basically the book that you have in front of you. And part of the beauty of it is that it is so clearly laid out that a reader has sort of no excuse <laughs> to not go do it. It's really, it is, it is really beautifully clear. Well, thank you. It, it is, I think, essentially what you would get if you attended... Um, like a uh, three or four day workshop on peacemaking that I gave, or if you took my what I used to be my course at the um, Chicago State University in restorative justice, this is basically what you'd get. Um, and I tried very hard to preserve that sense of immediacy and intimacy, as if I was in fact talking with people who were attending a workshop or taking a course or a graduate seminar that I was giving. Um, it, it's, it's very different from Singing to the Plants. Singing to the Plants was, was basically a scholarly work um, which in which I integrated my own experiences, my field experience, uh, and uh, whatever research I thought shed light on what I was talking about. This is deeply personal. Uh, one, one person who read it said, where are the footnotes? <laughs> there are no footnotes. I mean, there are many people who, who have influenced me and who said things that I cite, and I, of course, give them credit in the book, but it is not a scholarly book. It's a deeply mm -hmm. personal book in which I talk to the reader about something that is deeply meaningful to me, which is peacemaking and the way in which peacemaking, and in, in particular the use of peacemaking circles or council or whatever you want to call them, um, is ultimately a spiritual path. And within spiritual paths, it is deeply and truly a shamanic path. Um, as, a, as a good friend of mine said, who is a, a Native American Church road chief, he said that the healing circle is the original healing ceremony. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that is all somehow in the book. And I am delighted to hear that it is well organized because it all came out in three weeks of furious typing. Well, and one thing I'd like to say, you know, while it is deeply personal, especially sort of relative to a scholarly work um, in, its, in its style, it is unlike the genre in shamanic writing, though, that is entirely personal and is all about my cool shamanic adventures with so-and-so in the somewhere. You know, uh -huh. it's not right. that yes. kind of personal. It's profoundly um, practical and functional in the sense of my sense of the personal piece in it is that you were writing about your lived experience and the, and the clarity comes from really understanding the truth of this versus writing about something that is theoretical well i it's it reflects my having been part of hundreds and hundreds of circles of all kinds deeply moving ones, ones that just didn't seem to work um, with uh, high school and middle school students um, with um, I don't know, name it and, and I've probably circled up with them 
And, and you'll notice that what I said was not that I led a circle or that I facilitated a circle. What I said was I sat in a circle with other people. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. one of the most important points of the book is that many of our social... It, 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 in addition to being personal and practical, it is a social critique. Um, I, I point out that we live so in a hierarchical community. Is the audience different for the second time you wrote this book than the first time you wrote the book? I mean, since it is yes. for society. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what you said. I'm not. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Avoided, I think. I think that there are practical things in this book that people can do to improve their lives, um, to deepen their human relationships. And I think from that, um, things can change. I say in the book, I don't believe in, in big things. I don't believe that that non-governmental organizations or government or or any of those things are going to make fundamental changes. I believe the changes to society come from the bottom up, not from the top down. And that what we need to do is to create these islands of peacemaking. Mm -hmm. And then as we establish ourselves in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, these islands can, can build and grow. And it's going to be a very gradual process. We're talking about fundamental social transformation. But ultimately, I think the responsibility and the spirituality is a, is a personal one. You, you embark on a spiritual path. You say, I am a peacemaker, and I am going to walk this path. I am going to walk through life with a talking stick in my hand, and I'm going to hand that talking stick to everyone I meet. You make this profound commitment to the peacemaking path, and it becomes a spiritual path. It's not just practical. It's, it's not just a way of, you know, getting along with people better. It becomes something that deepens within you until you're able to relate to the whole world as if you were sitting in council with it and passing a talking stick back and forth. And if enough of us do that, uh, then change will happen so as we picture ourselves doing that we're, we're walking out in our in our real world which goes in our everyday the world that's out there mm-hmm. and it goes back to what you were saying about a certain aspect of this is is really a critique is a, is a societal critique or social critique yes. so and and kind of the essence of that perhaps is you know your your explanation about hierarchy transactional relationships basically and um the punitive nature of uh or assumption i guess that we make in so much so would you would you want to just share your your perspective on those so people because these are the things that we're really challenged with should we walk out in the world with our talking stick well my idea of culture that's that's hierarchical that is, in which some people have power over other people. And we accept this as, as being normal and natural, as if this is the way in which everybody lives. And we create spaces, we create courtrooms and offices and classrooms that express this. You walk into a courtroom and there is the judge on a high bench. You walk into an office and there is somebody sitting behind a desk in a high chair. You walk into a lecture hall and there is somebody standing up higher than the audience behind a podium. All of these spaces say that there are some people who are more important than others, whose voice is more important than other people. And we maintain this kind of hierarchy by using punishment. And, and for example, we, we assert and maintain hierarchical relationships by shaming, by verbal abuse, by physical injury, by intimidation, by reduction in status, by denying people basic social goods like education, employment, the right to vote, liberty. All of this in order to maintain this fiction 
that some people are more important than others and have voices that carry more weight. Um, and we've, we swim in an ocean of punishment. We punish our children. We punish each other. We think that punishing is the most natural thing in the world, and, and we don't realize that there are, in fact, indigenous cultures out there to whom this idea of hierarchy and punishment makes no sense at all. And we negotiate hierarchy. We make deals. We, um, we view our relationships in transactional terms. We negotiate. We bargain. We compromise. We do plea deals. We do plea bargains when one person has harmed another. And then we wonder why none of this works. We, we wonder why the solutions that we come up with are discarded, our negotiated agreements are abandoned in cycles of violence. And all of this, I think, is related to a foundational myth in our culture, which is, as theologian Walter Wink puts it, the myth of redemptive violence, believing that you can make a harm right by humiliating and physically injuring the offender, that violence is necessary and appropriate as a response to a harm, and it's normative to seek vengeance. Um, anybody who's been brought up in our culture has seen thousands of hours of, of movies um, where the... Uh, uh, the gentle sheriff finally shoots the bad outlaw, or the, the timid student finally beats up the schoolyard bully. Um, and we think that's natural, but it's a myth. It makes no sense. We're all constantly tempted to reenact this mythology and use violence as a way of solving conflicts and dealing with harms that have been done. I was, I was talking about this with um, a middle school class where I was talking about um, nonviolent resistance to oppression. And to illustrate this myth of redemptive violence, I, I brought up the movie Karate Kid. Have you seen that movie? Absolutely, yeah. Well, think about it. Mm-hmm. Here is the nice guy, the, the kid, who is being bullied by this... Um, uh, karate class, and he learns karate, and finally at the end, in the championship, he defeats the bully, even though the bully has nefariously injured him. And at the end, the bully, having been beaten and publicly humiliated by the young hero, accepts his defeat and humiliation, and himself brings the trophy to the winner, the young hero. Now this is this is a mythology. This is a reenactment of the mythology of redemptive violence. He's beaten him. He's hurt him. He's publicly shamed him, and now everything is okay. Um, and I asked the middle school class, "Is this realistic?" And one of the students said, "No. They're going to jump him later with a brick." And that's true, because violence begets only violence. Yeah. That's why there, there are cycles of violence. And these can go on for generations. Generation wow. after generation of inter-ethnic conflict until nobody remembers what started it. And there's got to be a better way. And it seems to me that the model for this is sitting in circle, sitting in council. And... and Slowly, one council session, one circle at a time, overcoming this hierarchical, punitive, and transactional way in which we view the world. So why don't that was we a talk- long answer to your question. Yeah, but why don't we <laughs> shift then into talking about you know what is it what does it mean then you know to sit in council? Because um, I. It, much of what I thought about as I was reading the book is the the water element and water elementally as this shape shifter. You know, it's always shifting mm-hmm. shape and yet it's always essentially water. And and 
and then looking to water as this peacemaker or the reconciler or the healer because of the willingness of water to become what it needs to be. And that, that sense of that willingness to sit in circle and allow what needs to happen. You know, it's a whole, to allow what needs to happen to happen. It's a very mm-hmm. different way to be present with others and communicating um, versus as each person speaks, thinking about your rebuttal or your response to that. You know, that this sort of mm-hmm. exchange communication versus this sense of as a circle, we become the voice for something we don't even know yet. Yes, I think that's right. I like the metaphor of water. I think that's that's uh, a very good one. I think the idea, well, the the on a practical level, the idea is really very simple. Um, in council, in circle, whatever you call it, peacemaking circle, healing circle, whatever you call it, people sit in a circle, and they pass around something that's called a talking stick. And the rule of the talking stick is very simple. Whoever holds the talking stick gets to speak, and everybody else listens. There are no interruptions, there are no questions, there are no challenges, there are no comments. People speak one at a time, in turn, honestly from their hearts. And they listen devoutly with their hearts to each person who speaks. That's it. And it's miraculous. It is absolutely a miracle to see what happens when people speak honestly and listen devoutly to each other. And then also with counsel is the beginning and the ending with ceremony. There's that piece too for me, because for me it's sort of parallel with the difference between uh, gathering to do ayahuasca in Brooklyn next Friday versus gathering to do ayahuasca next Friday in a ritual that's being held by someone who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, ceremony, Absolutely ritual, right. yeah, these, these pieces matter. Even the, even the beautiful, simple ceremony that you share as, as uh, examples in the book, like smudging. Yes. Although, here's here's a good example of uh, where the book gets really practical. I mean, (laughs) I've had all of this experience, and I want to share it. Um, There are two problems with smudging. One is that um, you can set off the fire alarm, the smoke detector. (laughs) That actually happened to somebody I knew, and because it was a school, it automatically called the fire department, and... They had to explain to the the firefighters who came in their trucks with sirens blaring that that it was just burning sage. It wasn't really a fire. The other was something that happened to me, which is we were were, uh, burning sage prior to... um, When I taught restorative justice at Chicago State University, we did it in a circle format. And we we were burning sage and passing around the uh, uh, the shell that held the sage, and the the um, state troopers broke in. Well, they didn't break in; they opened the door and tumbled in and said they'd had complaints that people in the this classroom were smoking marijuana. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we explained what we were doing, and we invited the troopers to sit in our our circle with us and join us and and see what see what came up about their experiences and the experiences of the mostly African American students who were there. But they declined, and we just went on. But. Um, that's an example of where I try to make the book as practical as possible when we're talking about, about sitting in circle. I so sort of they, got off the track there, didn't I? No, that's okay. <laughs> what um, we so we have, about? The, we have the practical piece of it, but then you talk about that balance um, between the formality and the solemnity and the tradition of, of those very simple sit in circle, begin and end with ceremony, use the talking stick. You know, it's, it's pretty well, simple. the idea is this, that, that sitting in a circle symbolizes the creation of a sacred space. Um, when we sit in circle, we are sitting in a, a safe space. We are sitting in what many indigenous people would even call a sacred space. And within this space, things are different than they are 
out there. In the circle, we listened to each other. We passed the stick. We listened devoutly with our hearts. We speak honestly from our hearts. We create a space within which heart-opening communication can take place. In the same way, the ceremony, I believe, creates a sacred time. In the world out there, we're in a hurry. We have things to do. We have a list. We have goals. We, we have to-do apps on our smartphones. Um, we, we are in a hurry. We need to accomplish things. At the end of the day, we want to be able to say we did this, we did that, we did something else. That is the time out there within the circle. We are in sacred time. We have nothing to do. We have no place to go. There is only one reason for us to be there, and that is to speak honestly from our hearts and listen devoutly with our hearts to everyone who holds the stick. And that's it. What will happen will happen in sacred time. Where the circle wants to go, it will go in sacred time. Because as soon as we start to direct the circle, um, we're becoming hierarchical again. We're not, list, we're not sitting quietly and waiting for spirit to speak through us. And the, the more that we try to control what's going on, the more that we're sitting there crafting our responses to what other people are saying or anticipating what we're going to say or arguing mentally with what other people have said, we are blocking spirit from speaking through us because we are not listening for spirits speaking through other people. So that's why it is a sacred time. There's no place to go. There's nothing to do. There is nothing to accomplish except listening for spirit and letting spirit speak through us. And I think there's a shamanic piece in that, which is, so the, the, the parallel that I'll use is in the very beginning of my starting to speak publicly, um, I would prepare. And then when I would show up and speak, so the preparation was like that formality of it. Mm-hmm. But when I would show up to speak, you know, I'd open my mouth and something else would happen, which had <laughs> yes. pretty much nothing to do with the notes and the preparation. Right. And yet, if I did not prepare... If I did not, you know, sort of create the space in my brain, I guess, I could show up, but the good stuff wouldn't come through. And it's Mm -hmm. that realization that you can't just go, oh, well, I'm so special. I have this relationship with spirit and it, it performs on demand. But more from this humble places. I, I do these simple things to the formality of creating the sacred space and the sacred time and open my heart to that possibility that this other spontaneous thing can happen. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very different because there is a certain sort of um, assumption of specialness that I find sometimes in the shamanic world where, well, I've already learned to journey, but I don't really need to journey anymore. I don't really need to do the formality or the ceremony anymore because I'm, I'm so very special now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, think, I think there is a lot of that. I think, I think humility is a very important part of sitting in circle. Another way of expressing it is to say that you are there to speak your truth with humility. Because your truth may not be other people's truth. One of the recommendations I make is that we avoid using the word you. Because when I say you, I am presuming to know what's in your heart. And I have no idea what's in your heart until you tell me honestly from your heart. But I do know what's in mine if I'll get out of the way. So most of the statements in council or in circle will be, I... I, I believe, I think, I want, I need, I regret, because you're talking about your heart and, and all of the things that are in there. And you never, in sacred time, you never know what's going to happen. Um, and you, you, 
you've got to be still in the presence of spirit. Um, so I, I, I think that the opposite of a hierarchical, punitive, and transactional society is, is in the sacred space and sacred time of the council, of the, the circle. Uh, there, there is um, something liberating. There is a certain kind of freedom in giving up ego, giving up dignity. Um, as, I, as I say in one place in the book, being a clown for peace. And liberating yourself from hierarchy and punishment and transactions is... Um, Let's lets you sit in sacred space and sacred time and and listen for spirit. So, Steve, I'd like to share two uh, kind of examples. They're sort of extremes, um, mm-hmm. but I think they're common. And let's talk about. Um, well, okay. So the first example would be in the decades here that I've been engaging with different shamanic groups, often. What I find is that it's as if there's this, assum- there's this assumption that because we're a shamanic group, we're good. <laughs> therefore, you know, therefore, I can actually treat people in the group however I want to. I, I, I have found that, that sometimes the shamanic groups make decisions and, and express them in a way that affects the other members of the group in a way that is actually worse than any of the worst companies I've ever worked for. Okay, and so so my so my question is then you know how 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 is it that this this group that's identifying as being the answer to the problem is continuing to be the problem the same problem they're actually thinking they're apart from so what's going on with that in the psychology and how would that group sort of move towards this peacemaking I think. The way, the best way to teach something is by modeling. Um, and you start out, if, if you're the one who has sat in more circles than other people, you, you model listening. You listen. You listen as if you were turning an antenna. You, you listen with a zen, no mind. Sometimes what happens is that then a person will get the stick and will just keep talking and talk and talk for a long time. And you get the, 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 the need growing within you to do something because, you know, you suddenly now have a proprietary interest in this circle. It's your circle, and, and, and this guy is spoiling it, and other people aren't getting a chance. And then you realize, why is... Why is he talking? And the answer is simple. It's probably the first time in his life anybody's ever listened to him. And he has probably internalized the lesson that unless he keeps talking, nobody will listen to him. So at some point, you let it go on. And at some point, maybe not even in that session, but at some session, this person will realize that he or she is being listened to. Oh, my God. I don't have to keep talking. People are listening to me. In the meantime, people see you listening. People see that people are listening to them when they are talking. People, people who start out being hierarchical and punitive and transactional find that in the presence of devout listening, their hearts open just as somebody who is opening his or her heart in sacred space and time compels devout listening. Um, there, there is this intention that all we are going to do is to speak honestly and listen devoutly and see what happens. And I think that human sitting in circle is something that reaches the deepest part of human nature. No matter who you are or 
where your people are from or what the color of your skin is, it doesn't matter. Your ancestors sat in a circle like this. When they had a problem or a conflict or simply to sing the songs and tell the stories that, that held the community together, they sat in a circle like this. When you sit in a circle, there is something compellingly human about speaking honestly and listening devoutly. And it requires patience. But of course, you're in sacred time, so there's no hurry. Well, and it requires courage. I think there's a tendency when we start using the heart word and the love word that, you know, uh, there's sort of like a rolling of the eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of really recognizing to know what is in one's own heart is not always simple. No, it's not, and it does. Yeah, and to speak it, it takes enormous courage. That, that's why I like the, um, the little invocation poem I used that, that was originally written as a chant by Starhawk that says, If we have courage, we shall be healers. Like the sun, we shall rise. If we have courage, we shall be healers. Like the sun, we will rise. Um, <laughs> I've said this a thousand times now. I can't remember the last line. Um, uh, we are alive as the earth is alive. Um, now I still can't think of the, I, that is that is absolutely amazing. So you have terrorized me into. I'm uh, sorry, <laughs> but I want to share with you my other example because please yes, I think the other extreme. I know that I've experienced it, but but many have, which is those who dove in and embraced this circling up idea um, fully, and yet the circles themselves um, become stagnant and suffocating. And there's a feeling of that, that sort of opening into the sacred space and time that allows something to happen that um, wouldn't happen if we were all just talking, that, that it mm-hmm. never happens, that, that we actually are still just grinding out hours of listening to everyone speaking really egotistically. And, and, and there are people that are just worn out from being in the formality of circle without ever achieving the spontaneity and the creativity and the true open-heartedness of circles. So is there any advice you can give there for that kind of heaviness and um, just the suffocating feeling of, oh, my God, we all just wasted our time? Does anybody say that? Yeah, that nothing spontaneous, special, or creative happened. We just heard the same thing we heard last time. Somebody may find that. In their heart and say it somebody may may put that on the floor in the middle of the circle and you say I am not feeling anything I I I am feeling oppressed by what's happening here and I think it's something we need to talk about so it's the courage to, to speak the courage to speak ever more honestly oh absolutely Absolutely. It takes tremendous courage. And, and as I say in the book, the reason why we, we give an affirmation, usually something like aho, after somebody speaks, is to salute that person's courage. Even if a person just holds the stick and says nothing, that takes courage. And it may be that that moment of silence is exactly what that circle needs at that time. It may be what the circle needs, what the circle is compelled with the stick and hold it to his or her heart just for a few minutes and let everybody settle into the silence. But not every circle is going to um, be a success in conventional terms. True. I think it is, it is heart opening just to pass the stick around in silence. It is heart opening for somebody to hold the stick and say, I'm sad today. Um, again, we have to, we can't create goals. And to say that, that, that the circle should 
the heart opening on this occasion may not be what's that circle. It's trying to tell spirit what it should do in that circle. And we can crave for open-heartedness. We can yearn for it, but maybe spirit at that moment wants the circle to be silent or wants the circle to experience ego. Um, so, if sitting in sacred time is a success, put aside the fact that many circles get together because they, they have an agenda. We're, we're going to circle up and, and talk about the problem with fundraising. And people get upset when the circle doesn't come to a conclusion about that. Uh, of course, if you're sitting in sacred time, you can start that way. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, it may be, too, that when you say, we need to have open-heartedness here, you're saying exactly the same thing. I have an agenda. And whatever it is that moves the circle, the spirits, spirit, collective wisdom, whatever you want to call it, whatever moves the circle to move in the direction it goes, may not think that's what you need right mm -hmm. then. Here's an example. Um... You may decide you want to write a sonnet. You want to learn how to write sonnets. And if you're learning to write sonnets, you're going to write an awful lot of bad sonnets. But for every bad sonnet you write, you are mastering the sonnet form. And then when you are truly moved, when you are truly inspired, the sonnet form is there for you. The form is there waiting to be filled. And when you do circle regularly with the same group, it's like you're learning how to write a sonnet. When you need it, the form is going to be there, even if in any particular case nothing much happens or nothing much seems to happen, because every circle is a success. So this is reminding me of um, what you talk about in the book about learning to speak and about stories and, and mm -hmm. how we help people complete stories. Um, which seems the same thing, is that we, we need to learn. So why don't you share some of, of what you share in the book about learning to speak and learning to complete the stories that are needed. Um, the way I, I conceptualize this, and there, there are lots of other ways of conceptualizing this, and people have talked about this, but I, I say that the, um, the basic unit of human communication is the story. And most of the time, we human beings are telling stories to each other. So the example I give in the book is this. I come home and I, I tell my, my wife or my roommate or my spouse or my partner, you wouldn't believe the traffic on the expressway this evening. It took me an hour and a half to get home. That's a story. It's the story of the terrible ride home. And so you're telling this story. Now, stories, I say, have three components. And like I say, this is just my simple way of conceptualizing it. There are lots of ways of conceptualizing it. Stories contain facts, feelings, and needs. Now, the story I just told about the horrible drive home is full of facts, and you now know all the important facts. You know that traffic was heavy and it took me an hour and a half to get home. But where's the rest of the story? Why aren't I telling you how I'm feeling? And why aren't I opening you what I need? And I think the reason is this. Because we have been taught systematically in our hierarchical, punitive, and transactional culture that if you tell people what you feel, they will consider you to be wrong or bad or crazy for feeling that. How many times have you, have you said something about feelings and people say, you shouldn't feel that way? For example, don't be so angry. Don't worry about it. You are being told that you are, are uh, wrong or bad or crazy for feeling the way you're actually feeling. 
And what about needs? If we're afraid to talk about how we feel, we are absolutely afraid to tell what we need. So a complete story about the horrible drive home would include all three. It would be something like, traffic was so bad, it took me an hour and a half to get home. Fact. I am feeling so tense and frustrated, feeling, that I really could use a hug. That's a complete story. And part of what we need to learn in order to speak honestly from our hearts, to communicate not only the facts, but the feelings and needs, is a safe space where somebody will listen devoutly to us, or who will work with us to elicit from us our feelings and needs as well are the least important part of the story. People will argue for years about the facts. Lawsuits that go on for, for decades are all about the facts, and we're constantly referring to the facts. Why? Because we're looking for the person to punish. When there is a conflict, when a harm has been done, we focus on facts. Why? Because we want to pick out the one who's wrong. We want to pick out the bad person so we can punish that person. But facts are the least important part of the story. And you just have to accept, and I say this over and over again and give lots of examples, we may never know what the facts are. As a matter of fact, we probably will never know what the facts are. Because most harms, most conflicts are part of ongoing relationships, and you can't punctuate them. All the way from a schoolyard fight between two boys who may have a long history of, of combative interactions to multi-generational, intractable, inter-ethnic conflicts that involve killing on both sides. You may never know what started it. As a matter of fact, it probably wasn't any one thing that started it because what you have is a cycle of violence. Um, Boy, I really wandered off on that one. <laughs> but, but that's, what were we that's talking fine. about? <laughs> because it, it, it does bring us kind of in a, in a full circle here, which is, so we're talking about peacemaking as a spiritual path. Yes. And But part of the point is we need it because of conflict, because we live in a world right now that is filled with conflict. We, we ourselves are filled with conflict. And so um, I wanted you to just talk a little bit about the nature of conflict, because people tend to say conflict bad, right? But you're yes. actually saying that conflict maybe not so bad. I think there are two things we need to know about conflict. One is that conflict is inevitable. Um, you, you want, you want uh, Mexican food? I want Thai food. Um, conflict is inevitable. No two people are ever going to get along with conflict, much less an entire community. The other thing is that conflict is good. Conflict is what gives us the opportunity to deepen our relationships. Um, and the reason why conflict gives us the opportunity to deepen our human relationships is because the way in which conflict is dealt with is working together to solve a problem. What creates peace is when people work together to solve a problem. That's what creates peace. And I give the example in the book of um, a little exercise I really like that I, I would use for, for my seminars and workshops, which is this. I, I divide um, the participants into partners, and I say, you and your, your partner in this exercise have just finished a long, hard week at the office, and you want on a Friday evening to go out and relax and have a nice dinner together. Only partner number one wants Mexican food longs for Mexican food, has been dreaming about Mexican food. Partner number two had Mexican food last night and wants Thai food. And I say, here's a conflict. Mexican food versus Thai food. 
anger, war, battle. <laughs> I say, you have three minutes to deal with this conflict. Go. And you know what? They all do. They come up with wonderful ideas. One idea, I, I remember these, they come up with these really great, clever ideas. One idea was, um, we'll go to a Mexican restaurant for appetizers, and then we'll go to a Thai restaurant for dinner. Or we'll go to a food court where they have both Mexican and Thai food, and we'll each get what we want. Or we'll go home and, and cook a meal. One, one pair came up with the idea of trying to make enchiladas with peanut sauce. <laughs> Like that they one. may decide. They may decide to go to a um, a third type of restaurant that they neither has been to before. Uh, they'd go to an Ethiopian restaurant. These are wonderful ideas. Because when I said there was a conflict, they didn't believe me, and they reframed the conflict into a mutual unmet need. We weren't really talking about where to eat dinner. We were talking about how will we have a good time on Friday night. And once you reframe that conflict into a mutual unmet need, then you are working together to solve a problem. And the most amazing thing about this little exercise, and the reason why I love it so much, is that when the exercise is over, the two partners who may never have met before attending this workshop feel closer to each other. They are friendlier to each other. They have warmer feelings toward each other. So reframing a conflict as a mutual unmet need and working together to meet that, mutu- that unmet need is what deepens relationships. When they go to the food court, when they're cooking the enchiladas with peanut sauce, when they're at the Ethiopian restaurant, their hearts are going to be a little bit more open to each other. Even though the exercise was artificial and it was a setup, they feel that the heart has opened a little bit. Why? Because they have recognized a mutual unmet need and they work together in order to to solve that, to meet that need. So, Steve, here we are at the end of the hour. And mm-hmm. so we have this, this, this scenario of these two people and this opening of the heart. So in, 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 the, in the end here, what would be, what is your vision for this, what is your vision for this ability to be peacemaking out there in the world? as a spiritual path, what's, what's the bigger vision in your mind? Um, you've got this talking stick. When you're holding the talking stick, you're speaking honestly from your heart. When you hand this, and it doesn't have to be a real talking stick. I talk a lot about carrying an invisible talking stick around with you. When you hand this talking stick to somebody else, your spouse, your parents, somebody you have an ongoing conflict with, or the taxi driver, or the checkout person at the uh, supermarket. Hand them this invisible talking stick and start listening devoutly with your heart to what they have to say. And it's miraculous. The incredible stories there are out there. There's an old Jewish saying, God loves stories, so he created people. The world is filled with these stories and you can hear these stories just by handing over your invisible talking stick and opening your heart. Now try this. Hand your invisible talking stick to a tree. Open your heart and listen devoutly to that tree. That tree has stories to tell you. Hand your invisible talking stick to the earth and listen to the stories that the earth will tell you. Hand your invisible talking stick to spirit and listen to what spirit is telling you. Hand your invisible talking stick to your best self and see what your best self is going to tell you. 
If you have a dream and there is somebody in the dream who has threatened you, who has frightened you, hand your invisible talking stick to that dream person and say, will you be my teacher? What are you trying to teach me by frightening me? Once you start carrying this around, once you, you are able to carry this invisible talking stick in your back pocket and hand it to, hand it to the sky, hand it to the stars, hand it to the taxi driver, the world will suddenly be filled with stories. It will be filled with miracles. And I, I think that is in some way living in a shamanic universe where the shaman is the singer of songs who sings for the plants and animals, who sings for the watersheds, who sings for the rivers, and who hands his or her invisible talking stick to everybody. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for that, that vision of a possible future. So thanks for being with us here today, because we've oh, it was unfortunately a great run out of time here. But thank you mostly for your book, Talking Stick, Peacemaking as a Spiritual Path. And this book will be available in 2016. Yes, from so Inner like Traditions give- Press. Oh, Inner Traditions Press. Yes, thank you. So everybody, you can just kind of keep track on Facebook or on the website, and we'll let you know when the book is available. Yes. I want to give thanks to you and your publisher. I give thanks to the ancestors. I give thanks to the earth below and the sky above and the heart that unites us all. And I thank all of you for listening. Have a good week.